This is the Hiking Through Life podcast. We've all been gifted a journey called life. Let's see where the journey leads us today. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast, where we talk with people who in some way, shape, or form have been influenced by the outdoors. I'm Andy, the producer of this podcast, and my lovely wife, Sarah, will be your host. Together, we make up Hiking Through Life. This podcast is all about bringing all kinds of people who are inspired by the outdoors and sharing their stories. We hope that by sharing people's stories, it inspires others to get out and live a more meaningful life. Tune in every week for new episodes, or better yet, subscribe to the Hiking Through Life podcast on your favorite podcast provider. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Also, if you have a story to share or know of anyone who might be interested in being a guest on this podcast, head on over to hikingthroughlife.net slash podcast and get in touch with us. If you'd like to support Hiking Through Life, you can go to hikingthroughlife.net slash shop. We have t-shirts, water bottles, and we recently added stickers to the shop. Use the code podcast at checkout and receive 10% off your first order. There are other ways you can support this podcast as well. You can check those out at hikingthroughlife.net slash support. Also, be sure to sign up for our email list. You can do that by heading over to hikingthroughlife.net. Enter your email address and click subscribe. There's no commitment. You can unsubscribe at any time. As part of our email list, you'll receive our monthly newsletter. We'll also be sending out any promotional codes for Hiking Through Life gear. It's an excellent way to follow Hiking Through Life's journey. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Today we have Dave Freeman on the podcast with us. He is half of the Freeman Explore team. Perhaps you have heard of the Freemans who lived a year in Minnesota's Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in order to educate and spread awareness for the campaign to save the Boundary Waters. In addition to living a year in the Boundary Waters, they have been exploring wild places all over the world since 2001, including the Arctic, paddling to DC, and kayaking from Seattle to Alaska. The Freemans also run a wilderness classroom and educate kids on all of these wild places. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. We're really happy to have you on. So can you tell us how did this adventurous lifestyle come to be? It sounds like you and Amy both grew up going to the Boundary Waters. We did. We we both grew up in cities. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago and Amy grew up in St. Paul. So, you know, pretty urban areas. But as kids, our parents brought us up to the Boundary Waters. And I think you know, we both sort of fell in love with wild places through the Boundary Waters, and we both ended up sort of gravitating to northeastern Minnesota and, uh, you know, had jobs up there, moved up there, and and then we met in the Boundary Waters, uh, I guess, about 15 years ago now, and uh, the rest is history. So did you guys meet, because you guys also guide trips up there. Did you meet while you were guiding trips? Uh, yes. Yeah, we were... We met in Grand Marais on Lake Superior, and I was guiding canoe trips at the time, and Amy was guiding sea kayaking trips on Lake Superior, and we met in town, and Amy had always wanted to kayak around Lake Superior, and uh, and I sort of convinced her that she should do it with somebody else and, you know, not do it solo, and then after a little bit, I 
I decided I should convince her that I was the person to do it with her. So um, spent two months doing that and sort of been inseparable ever since. So that was your kind of first big expedition, like kind of not, not even a first date or honeymoon, but just going kayak Lake Superior. <laughs> yeah, well, we we started dating uh, a few months before, so it wasn't like we just did it when we didn't know each other at all. But it was definitely the yeah the first first sort of extended journey that we went on. We we did like a one or two night camping trip to, as a shakedown beforehand, but it, we were it was pretty new for both of us. Wow. And so, I mean, both of you clearly have like a huge yeah, outdoor background growing up and everything. So was it around that time when you were like going on Lake Superior that you guys were kind of realizing that this expedition style lifestyle was what you guys were meant to do? Yeah, I think so. I had started a few years earlier um, and had already done some other expeditions before I met Amy, but um, but once we joined forces, uh, things started to grow from there, and, and we paddled 3,000 miles across South America through the Amazon, and then we did a 12,000-mile trip by canoe, kayak, and dog sled across North America, and um, so our, our journeys sort of got larger and more complex, and, and we started having more and more school kids follow us through the wilderness classroom. And so things just started, started growing. Yeah. And so the wilderness classroom is, was that something that you had already created prior to all of your other expeditions or it sounds like that was created in 2001 from what I was reading? Yeah. So, so I started it with another man named Eric Frost, who also lives in Northeastern Minnesota. And uh, he he had a, an education background. Uh, he had been a classroom teacher, and basically, we were just looking for a way to be able to virtually bring kids to wild places because we thought, you know, you can't put a classroom of third graders on a airplane and fly them to the Amazon, but we could use technology to sort of bring them there and use online polls and um, you know different interactive features so that they could actually help us make decisions and and sort of learn along with us. And so that started uh, in 2001 and, and slowly grew over time. By 2015, we had about 100,000 kids and 3,200 teachers or something like that following our journeys. And um, uh, and then we we sort of took a break from the wilderness classroom and, and focused a lot of our attention on working to protect the boundary waters because there's a copper mine that's being proposed there. So our, our focus sort of shifted a little bit away from the wilderness classroom and working with kids and more working with, um, you know, advocating for the protection of the boundary waters, which is a place that sort of means more to us than any place that we've explored. Um, but now with COVID, uh, we're sort of, we're, we're finding that those skills that we learned is very relevant and needed right now. So we're, we're doing virtual school assemblies where basically we like beam ourselves into uh, either into a school or in directly to kids that are learning from home. And we can teach them about the Amazon or dog sledding or, you know, all these different expeditions that we've been on, uh, you know, instead of going into their gymnasium and doing a program physically in their school, we can, we can do it remotely. So that's been really fun and sort of a way to try and uh, try and help during this challenging time. 
Yeah. Well, because even before COVID, it seems like you guys were doing some of the um, lessons virtually, but you were also going to a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. We, we started offering basically virtual school assemblies using Skype um, back in 2013. And I think it was just a little ahead of our time. I mean, we've done quite a few of them over the years, but you know, most, most schools were just like, what, you know, like, what, are you, what are you talking about? We're going to use Skype to learn about the rainforest. Like I, they, they quite understand it. And now, you know, starting in last spring when kids were working remotely, we just started getting bombarded with schools like, you know, Hey, what's this virtual assembly thing? Like we, we want to do this. So, um, so it's been fun to, to take something that we had, you know, started developing a long time ago and, and done quite a few of, but it, but it's really taken off in the last, uh, last few months. Right. I mean, it's totally the time for it to be doing. And like going into the school year this year, I'm sure loads of classrooms and teachers are going to want to be reaching out to you guys as well, especially with people not being able to travel right now. I mean, you basically bring that experience to life for children. Yeah, it's really fun. And it's cool because we can work with schools all over. I think it was uh, two nights ago, we worked with 300 kids in India, um, 13 to 16 year olds. And, you know, it was nine, 9.30 at night here in Minnesota. And it was eight o'clock the, in the morning the next day, I think, in India. So um, it's sort of fun to be able to, to sort of not worry about distance and, and be able to sort of connect with people all over. Yeah, I mean, the possibilities become endless. That's so cool, India. I mean, how did they even get in contact with you guys? If you do a search for virtual school assembly, you know, our page is, you know, in the top three or something. And uh, so they just found us uh, and sort of reached out. And so, yeah, it was sort of a fun connection. We've done that in the past with through uh, through Skype. The, Skype has a program called Skype in the Classroom, which is sort of cool that it connects teachers from all over the world with with experts and different people and um, so that's that's uh, one, another thing we've done where we've connected with schools in you know the UK and India and China and you know all over the place and is your goal with the wilderness classroom it's k through it's mainly elementary correct it is mostly yeah most of the mostly k through 8 uh, that we're working with and it seems like there's like a large variety of things that educators can choose on that website, the Wilderness Classroom website. Like it looks like you have assemblies focused on the rainforest, dog sledding, North American assemblies. Is there any that you're like focusing in on during this time or is it just kind of whatever the schools would like? It's whatever the schools would like. Uh, the, um, our rainforest assembly is our most popular with um, with elementary school students and the dog sledding assemblies are really cool. Those are popular too. Uh, but it, you know, some schools are studying oceans or, or they're, you know, looking for something specific about the boundary waters. So we do do uh, something about the year we spent in the wilderness. Uh, so we, we adapt them to whatever they're interested in, but our rainforest program uh, and the dog sledding, those are sort of our bread and butter. Okay. Yeah. Cause you guys also in the winter, you guys are doing dog sledding, correct? 
when you're living, you're when you're not adventuring. Yeah, yeah. When we're when we're not off someplace else, we typically guide dog sled trips for Wintergreen Dog Sled Lodge, which is right outside of Ely. And so um, they have a, a kennel of seventy sled dogs, and so yeah, it's really fun. We're out all day, most days, out in the winter woods uh, with folks showing them how to have fun in the snow and the cold. And, um, and so then when we do the virtual assemblies, we can, you know, we'll, we'll uh, grab one or two of our favorite well-mannered sled dogs and we'll use them for examples as we're showing the, showing the students, you know, the a dog sled and the clothes we wear and um, how we harness the dogs and how we care for the dogs and, you know, answer all their questions. So it, it's really fun. Yeah. I mean, that's, the most real you can get other than actually being in person with them for them to actually see a sled dog. Cause otherwise, I mean, especially kids in India, like they probably wouldn't otherwise have ever seen a sled dog. So that's really, really cool. Or perhaps even snow. So. <laughs> right. Right. Or snow even. So, I mean, the, the opportunities are really endless out there. It's, pretty cool what we can do with technology and it's so like ironic that you guys go on these like vast wilderness trips but are so reliant on technology when you're going out there have you ever thought about how strange that is yeah it is it is strange um but you know we've just sort of adapted to it um and and i guess uh, we really see uh, on our expeditions part of the part of it is sort of a selfish thing, right? We, we just love being out there. We love the physical challenge. We love the, you know, sort of the stillness and, and the solitude. But I don't think that we would do these, you know, year long or multi year long um, projects if there wasn't some sort of higher purpose, you know, something we were working towards, whether, you know, it's it's working with the campaign to save the boundary waters to to help protect our nation's most popular wilderness or, um, you know, being in constant communication with school children and helping them understand, you know, why wilderness is important and, and, you know, teaching them about, about the plants and animals and people that we're encountering. Um, you know, that's a big part of what, what we're doing and why we're out there. And so technology is just sort of, a, it's a part of it. It's an important part of it that helps us, but we sort of, look at it, you know, just like it's, it's like a tent or like a canoe or like a pair of cross country skis. It's just, you know, the satellite terminal is just, it's another piece of equipment, just like our stove. And, um, and we use it for a very specific thing. And then it gets put away in our pack. And we don't, we don't worry about it until the next day when we need to use it for 20 minutes to, you know, to send out information or download emails or whatever it is. Right, right. It's just, I mean, the, the luxuries that we have in this day and age is pretty incredible that you can do that. So when you guys were out for your whole year in the Boundary Waters canoe area wilderness, um, were you tied to the tied to the wilderness classroom at that time as well? We were, yep. We um, hired someone part-time to help us uh, make worksheets uh, for, and and sort of enhanced educational materials. And then we were sending out um, weekly uh, sort of blog posts that would, that would, that would then have um, worksheets tied to them. And we were, we were doing um, 
you know, sort of daily small social media posts with daily data that kids could graph. We were actively working with kids during the year in the wilderness, um, but it, that was on a little bit on the on the back burner. You know, the the reason that we were out there was to help people uh, understand that the Boundary Waters is an extremely special place, and and there's this Chilean mining company that wants to build a copper mine right on the edge of the wilderness that would you know, have a very, very negative impacts on the area, uh, pollute the water. And, and so that was sort of the main focus of the year. But we were working with school children as well. And as far as the Save the Boundary Waters campaign goes, I mean, I know you guys went out there and that was 2015 that you did the year in the wilderness, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I mean, there's probably been huge growth in the campaign since then. I mean, and for anybody who has doesn't know much about the campaign, how would you describe it in a very simple way for people who are unaware of what this is? Yeah, so the campaign to save the Boundary Waters was started to help protect the Boundary Waters from, um, from copper mining. We've never had a, a copper mine in Minnesota. Um, and Copper mines have a very long track record of causing significant uh, water pollution, both surface and groundwater pollution. There's small amounts of sulfide uh, in the rock, along with small amounts of copper and other minerals that we want. And when sulfide is exposed to air and water, it produces battery acid, sulfuric acid. And um, every mine of this type that has built, been built anywhere in the world has caused significant ground or surface water pollution. So so putting a, this type of mine right on the edge of the wilderness where any water pollution from the mine would flow directly into the wilderness is just not a good idea. And so the, the campaign to save the Boundary Waters, their website is savethebounderywaters.org, um, has been working to, uh, to stop mines from being built and to permanently protect the watershed to basically make it so that copper mines are not allowed within the watershed of the Boundary Waters. And um, it's a growing organization. They have, uh, along with their partner organizations, um, they represent over 18 million people from all across the country. They're um, actively working to protect this place. And and so it's it's a great organization. I encourage people to learn more about it and, um, you know, look at for ways you could get involved. Yeah, there's one super cool way that people can get involved. I know that they do like Boundary Waters yoga on Zoom weekly. Well, it's not weekly, but it's every few weeks and you just pay a small donation and then you get a yoga class, but you're donating to this awesome cause of Save the Boundary Waters. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I've participated in a few of those ones. It's really neat. So what are some of the biggest like changes and growth you've seen in the Save the Boundary Waters campaign in the five years you guys have so closely been working with them? When Amy and I first learned about the Twin Metals mine being proposed, uh, Northeastern Minnesotans for Wilderness, which is a local nonprofit organization based in Ely, you know, it was volunteer run, had, you know, a few hundred members and, you know, from mostly just local people living uh, in Northeastern Minnesota, but some of those folks realized that this this was a big deal. And if a mine was built in this place, it would forever change the landscape and uh, have detrimental effects on our local economy. Um, and uh, now the over time, the campaign has grown. They have you know full-time staff uh, members that are in Ely, 
um, as well as Duluth and and uh, the Twin Cities, and they they're out in Washington D.C. meeting with elected officials, uh, bringing business owners and uh, people like Amy and myself um, out to Washington D.C. to tell our stories and help make us understand why building a mine next to the boundary waters doesn't make sense. They've really um, become a force to reckon with. And, you know, when you're trying to stop a multi-billion dollar mining company from building a mine, uh, you know, you, you got to be all in and you got to have a lot of resources. And um, the campaign to save the boundary waters has, has grown and made the connections that they need to put up a very uh, good challenge to these mining companies and, and, uh, and stop this from happening, which is, which is really important. Right. And the whole stopping this from happening. I mean, at at what point is it going to end? I mean, is there a foreseeable future of them either deciding to do it or just not doing it? Or is this just an ever going battle, you think? Um, it, you know, in 2014, Amy and I, we paddled from Ely to Washington, D.C. and and thousands of people signed it and and we we delivered it to the head of the forest service well there's three signed canoes now um oh, yeah okay. there's a few of them but that was that was the first one i know i signed <laughs> and, the uh, one that was at midwest mountaineering <laughs> yeah there's a few and you know we sort of thought like great we you know we we did this all thousands and thousands of people, you know, spoke out and were like, great, you know, President Obama was the president at the time. We're like, all right, he's just going to like wave a magic wand and this is all going to go away. Uh, but, you know, what we learned is that these things take a long time. Oftentimes it's a decade uh, to really um, get something like this done. And uh, so it, it's going to take a few more years. And I think the reality is it's going to take, um, it's going to take a new administration, um, but in the end, you know, the Boundary Waters is is our nation's most popular wilderness area. Um, it is central to the the um, economy of northeastern Minnesota, and uh, it's just too precious to risk. And I think people understand that. Voters understand that. Um, and so, in the end, we we will protect the Boundary Waters, but it, it's it's going to take more time. Yeah, I mean that's. Definitely what it sounds like time. Um, yeah, if people have been there, I think that's like the biggest way to make a connection with it and realize why that place is so special. And so for you guys to spend a whole year there, I I can't even imagine what that was like. I mean, even coming back into society after a year, that must have been so weird too. <laughs> it was, it was. It took us several weeks to really be able to sleep uh, and we we were on an airplane a couple of days after we got out of the wilderness, you know, and flew to to D.C. for a week of meetings, and uh, it was it was quite surreal uh, to to leave the wilderness and all sort of the tranquility and the silence, and just all of a sudden be in a city, you know, with with the you know air pollution and the noise and the and just um, sort of as far from a wild untrammeled place as you could be uh, it was very shocking it was it was definitely like culture shock because you guys truly didn't leave it you had people coming in and bringing you resupplies correct yeah so the you know the we were working very closely with the campaign to save the boundary waters and so our expedition manager levi he 
he organized over 300 volunteers that uh, approximately every two weeks, uh, groups of people would come in and bring us supplies. Uh, you know, and if it was getting colder, they'd bring us in warmer clothes. If it was getting warmer, they would, you know, take out our warmer clothes and bring in, uh, you know, a lighter weight sleeping bag or whatever we needed. So, yeah, we didn't cross the road. We didn't go in a building and flip flip a light switch. We didn't leave the wilderness for 366 days. We got an extra day because it happened to be a leap year that year. Oh, one extra day in there. That's wild. And because I mean, you guys had a lot of kind of mental training leading up to this because you had been in the Arctic before that you did your kayaking on Lake Superior, you were in South America. So you had a handful of other other excursions to mentally prepare you for this. But this was still the longest drawn out one, correct? Well, the one that we did previous to that was three years long. Was that the Arctic? Yeah, we went from Seattle up to the Arctic Ocean, um, and then from there, sort of on a diagonal back to Lake Superior, and then from there out the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway and down the East Coast to Key West, Florida. So that was 12,000 miles and took us three years. But, you know, we went through towns and, you know, we took breaks, and so it was it was broken up. But, you know, the sort of physical challenges of that uh, were definitely more than what we experienced during a year in the wilderness. The skills that we had developed over the previous decade made a year in the wilderness uh, possible, I guess. And it wasn't that there were never challenges, but, but, um, but we definitely were prepared and, and, you know, had every, everything we needed. And uh, it was, we didn't want to leave. We, we would have been happy to stay out there. We really felt like um, we had, had everything we need you know we had clean water we could drink right out of the lakes we had food that people brought into us we we had a shelter just you know a simple tent was all we felt like we needed and we had our you know we had each other and and we had this very strong uh, sense of purpose because we were working to protect this this national treasure that's the our favorite place on earth so with those things you know we really uh, were content and and would have been happy to stay longer. You would have stayed longer, but you had the you had a flight to D.C. Correct? Yeah, I mean, our, we couldn't. I mean, we could have stayed, but yeah, we couldn't have stayed. You know, I mean, we in order for us to try and accomplish our goal of protecting the boundary waters, we had to leave. We we, you know, there was a whole another chapter of the story. We uh, as soon as we left, we were in D.C. for a week for meetings and then, you know, the next month we had presentations and, you know, events, you know, almost daily. And then we spent eight months writing a book and, you know, I mean, it was like, we could have stayed, but, but to really try and fulfill our purpose for being out there, staying was, was not the right choice. We, We needed to leave the wilderness. We'd already experienced it and we needed to share it in new ways. Um, and, and unfortunately, selfishly, maybe that meant we had to had to go out so we could go to TV studios and and you know conference centers and and libraries and microbreweries and churches and you know and Congress, right? We had to go and and be heard by anyone that that would listen. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, it's like you you experience something so intense for a whole year. That yeah, I mean, sharing the story is the only way to move on with what your guys' mission was. 
So speaking of challenges, I mean, what were some of the biggest challenges you did face while out there? I mean, I can imagine there was some weather challenges, especially in the winter seasons. Yeah, the really the biggest challenge actually was <laughs> a, a lack of cold. Um, you know, in the Boundary Wars, it gets quite cold. It was a very mild winter, and we had expected the lakes to be frozen and um, to have our the sled dogs we would use for the winter and our, our first resupply after freeze-up brought in around the 11th of December. But our sled dogs didn't end up coming in until the 2nd of January. Uh, freeze-up was very, very late, and we, we almost ran out of food. And then even once everything froze up, it was it was just... It was very mild. We had a couple nights where it got down to like 30 below zero, but uh, but for the most part, it was warmer than average. And so what happens is when you have ice form and then snow falls on the ice and then the weight of the snow sort of pushes down on the ice and then water seeps up through cracks and it's insulated by the snow. So you get you know a few inches of snow and then you get a few inches of water and then you get the ice. And so when you go trudging through the snow and you hit you hit one of these pockets of water that's pooled on top of the ice, you expose it to the air and the, the water basically freezes instantly to, you know, your boots or your sled or your skis or the dog. It was just a very bad year for slush, uh, I think in large part because of sort of the milder, the normal uh, winter. And, uh, and so it made travel really difficult. There were some days where just traveling a couple miles was like, <laughs> was a, a many multi-hour affair. Uh, so that was, that was one of the more challenging parts. And then also just staying warm in the winter, you know, like everything takes longer. Uh, we spent probably at least an hour every day just gathering and processing firewood. Uh, and, you know, moving camp took several hours just you know to break get break down and set up camp so um it was the winter is it can be a challenging time but you know it's also just a really nice time to be out there it's it's real quiet and um and there's hardly anybody else out there uh and, and you can see all sorts of animal tracks so you know moose and otter and uh, wolves and um, ravens and all, all sorts of animals leave tracks in the snow and you can sort of piece together what all the animals are doing by the by their the the evidence they leave. Yeah, I've never been up there in the winter, but I've heard it's a really magical time to be up there. So would you say winter is your preference over being up there in other months? Well, I it's hard to choose a favorite month. Uh, I think September or cuz it's just um September that you know there really aren't any bugs uh, and by the end of the month, the leaves are starting to change, crisp, like fog-covered uh, lakes in the morning. And, and then in March, the days are really long, and it's getting warmer, and uh, you get sort of a, a freeze-thaw cycle at the end of the month and into uh, the beginning of April, where it the snow melts and then freezes. And so you can uh, ski across the lakes without uh, sinking down in the snow, and you just, just this crust on the top, and you can just you can just fly and you can just go all over the place. It's really amazing. Sometimes it lasts for a few days, sometimes for a few weeks, but it's like a, a really magical time to be out there. 
Yeah, that sounds really, really neat. A whole year. That's just, that's crazy. That's amazing that you guys did that. What do you think was the biggest impact, like the biggest takeaway you guys had from your whole year that you want to share with others? And I mean, I know you wrote a whole book about it, but just in a brief synopsis, like what was the biggest takeaway? I think just personally, just sort of the importance of slowing down and and just really thinking about what's important. You know, a lot of times I think we get caught up on a lot of stuff that maybe doesn't matter quite as much as just surrounding ourselves with the people we care about and, um, you know, putting our energy towards things that we really believe in and and um, just a, just sort of the benefits of, of simplicity, I guess. Yeah, simplicity. That's totally something that I, I love taking away from three-day backpacking trips or four-day canoe trips. But I mean, yeah, that's all. I mean, you don't need to go a whole year. It'd be amazing to go a whole year. But yeah, the simplicity thing, it's very true. We need very few things to live. And you guys definitely showed that like by being there a whole year. You didn't turn outlets. You didn't drive. You didn't do any of that. And you survived. Yeah, we, I mean, we thrived. It was, yeah. it was one of the best years of our lives. I mean, it really was. And you don't, you're right. You don't need to spend a whole year out there, you know, an afternoon or, or a few days or a week, um, just taking that time to be out in nature and slow down and uh, is, is, is so important, for, you know, physically and mentally to just take the time to do that. Yeah, 100%. So what advice do you have for people who have never visited the Banju waters? Like, what would you say to a first timer going up there? Well, you know, the Boundary Waters is a, uh, it's a really special place. Uh, and one of the things that makes it so cool is that it's, it's very accessible. You know, during our year in the wilderness, our youngest uh, visitor was two months old. And, you know, our oldest visitor was in their 80s. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's it's a great place for people of all ages uh, and and even phys- different physical abilities because it's not like you have to load everything in a super heavy backpack and, um, you know, lug everything around. You know, when you're first starting out, you can start small. Uh, there are places where you, you know, you put your canoe in and you could paddle a mile or so across the lake and you could find a campsite and you could, you could set up camp there, you know, or if you want, you could, you know, portage in deep into the wilderness. You know, there are over 800 named lakes in the wilderness and over 2000 campsites. So, so if you want to go far, you can, but there are also opportunities to uh, visit the Bandurars for the day or, or camp overnight, but stay close to close to the trailhead, close to the edge um, as you build your skills and confidence. And there's also um, a whole network of outfitters that their whole job is to to help people um, by providing the, the equipment that they need, helping them choose a route, uh, helping them reserve a permit. Um, they'll even pack food for you. So you can show up with just, you know, your personal clothes and, and they'll give you your food and your tent and your sleeping bags and packs and uh, canoes, everything that you need. Or if you already have, uh, you know, camping equipment, 
you could pack your food, you could bring your equipment, and you could just rent a canoe um, from them, and they'll and they can still you know go over maps with you and show you uh, you know show you where the good campsites are and help you you know help you sort of learn um, and have a, a successful trip. So I would definitely suggest uh, you know connecting with an outfitter. Um, there are also guides. I, you know, I work as a guide in the summer leading canoe trips. So if you feel like you're not ready to, to go out um, on your own, um, then you, know, you could look at, at hiring someone to go with you and they could teach you how to do it. Yeah, there's so I love that you said it's like accessible to people of all ages because there's so many different sites that you can go to. Like you said, you could easily just paddle across a lake and there's a campsite not far at all from an outfitter. Yep. So yeah, it's definitely an accessible place for people. Um, do you feel like you guys got to all of the 800 lakes and 2000 campsites in your year? No, we, you know, we set a goal of visiting at least 500 different bodies of water. And I think we went to 502. So there were still over 800 or sorry, over 300 that we didn't have the time or energy to visit even in an entire year. So it's, it's a vast, a vast, vast place still lots to explore. There's still, still quite a few lakes we haven't been to. Wow. Yeah. After a year and you didn't touch them all. Cause was there like a handful of days where you guys would have like lots of rest days? Cause you weren't on like a rigid schedule, correct? No, we, we weren't. We, so we camped in about a hundred different locations. Like we've moved camp about a hundred times. So in the winter, we were moving less often, like, you know, on average, you know, one and a half or, you know, two times a week, something like that. In the summer, we were moving a little bit more often. And then as the lakes were freezing in the fall and um, thawing in the spring, we had, we, we did not move. In the fall, we had about five weeks as the lakes were freezing where we, we only moved campsites a couple times you know, maybe three different campsites over the course of five weeks or four campsites or something because um, freezing process was really slow. So there's just a lot of time when the lakes were sort of too thin, you know, too thin, the ice was too thin to walk across, but it was sort of too thick to paddle through. And so we would sort of get stuck for a while waiting and then things would change a little bit and we could get across one lake and then we get to the next lake and it was, you know, it was sort of, too thin to walk across again and we just have to wait a little longer so it was um in the summer we were you know probably moving campsite every other day or something like that okay yeah that would make sense that the waiting came in the winter did those days waiting in the winter ever feel like they dragged out or did you guys seem to always find things that needed to be done well i think it you know by that time we had already been in the wilderness for quite a while we entered on the 23rd of september so you know by late november early december as it was you know things are really starting to freeze we had really sort of fallen into a rhythm and um i mean there were parts of it that was sort of like okay we're ready like why is it freezing because mostly because we were sort of worried about running out of food but we never really thought about like uh, you know, oh, like we were windbound or, or you know, stormbound or anything like that. It was more, if the weather wasn't good, we just, we just did other things, you know, but, it, and we never, it didn't feel like we were trapped. It was just sort of like, why would you try to go someplace if, you know, if there's a 
20 mile an hour headwind, you just wait, wait, we'll go the next day, you know, like we weren't on a schedule. So, so we never really felt like, uh, we, we never felt constrained by, by things like that, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where so many people get in trouble when they are up in the boundary waters, cause they perhaps are unfortunately on a schedule, but that's a really neat perspective that you guys didn't, you were so open to time and it wasn't a constraint. Yeah. That was definitely one of the luxuries of being out for so long is, is, uh, time, time took on a, a different perspective. Yeah. But so it sounds like you guys, like when the resupplies came, you guys always had visitors as well. So would people come in, like stay, like camp with you for a couple nights? Um, sometimes. So we set the resupplies up every two, basically every two weeks, except during the freeze up and the thaw, then they were like six weeks apart. Um, but we set all the dates up before we entered the wilderness and um, and location. So there are 63 different entry points for the boundary waters, like scattered all over. And so we chose entry points um, scattered all over the wilderness. And so, you know, it was like July 13th, we're going to be by the Sawbill Lake entry point, right? So people could sign up that they would come in from there. Uh, and, and, you know, we would, we sort of committed, we'll be within, you know, a couple hour paddle of that entry point. And sometimes they, they spent the night. Uh, sometimes they spent a few days with us, but a lot of times they were either just starting a canoe trip. So they just scheduled their, you know, five day canoe trip so that they would enter um, with a pack of food for us. And they'd come and drop it off on our campsite and visit with us for an hour or two. And then they would be off, you know, on their own canoe trip. So, but it really varied. And we, we there was so much interest in bringing in supplies that actually, uh, multiple groups would come in because you can't have more than nine people in one place in the wilderness. So, uh, you know, sometimes a group of five people would come in and they drop off supplies and, you know, visit with us for an hour or two. And then they'd go off on our, on their canoe trip. And then a few hours later, uh, another group would come in and visit with us for a little bit. And, um, so some of, some people we visited with for an hour or two, other people would, would spend the night some were, you know, close friends and family members and others were people that we'd never met before, but just loved the Boundary Waters and, and wanted to support uh, what we're doing. And so um, it was really neat. We met a lot of great people and, and the, the resupplies was something we always looked forward to. And, and uh, you know, we savored those conversations with people long after they left because because there was those pretty limited contact with, with people for the year. Right. I can imagine having those people come out was just kind of like a very uplifting moment to just have some sort of more, more human connection other than the two of you. Yeah. Yeah. And just a very concrete reminder of sort of why we were out there, you know, um, these other people that really cared about the boundary waters and, and saw value in what we were doing out there, sort of bearing witness to the wilderness and, and helping the campaign to save the Boundary Waters. So, you know, we, we knew that through, you know, reading newspaper articles or, or, you know, messages people would send us or whatever, but but physically, you know, seeing smiling faces and talking to people was really a, a wonderful thing, something that we really cherished. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw the picture of you guys the day that you 
set out on the year long trip and there was two or 300 people there supporting what you were doing and just sending you off on your trip. So there was so much support and still is so much support for the Boundary Waters campaign. Yeah, yeah, yep. It's uh, the Boundary Waters is a special place and and we're lucky that, you know, millions of Americans have have been there and if you've been there, um, it, it's it just sort of becomes a part of your soul and and uh, and makes you want to protect it. So was there a favorite spot you had in the Boundary Waters or is that way too hard to pick as well i don't know if i could really share that information no just kidding. <laughs> top um, secret yeah top secret uh you know there's uh there's so many wonderful places there was a campsite up on on knife lake which is which is sort of in the middle of the wilderness and it's right on the u.s canadian border and there's another million acre park in, on the Ontario side called the Quetico Provincial Park, which is also non-motorized and, you know, no roads or buildings or anything like that. And, uh, and so there's a campsite up there uh, near a, a big cliff called Thunder Point that we, we really came to enjoy. And we stayed on it um, several times throughout the year, just because it, it was just sort of at this crossroads that, you know, it seemed like every, every three or four months we would end up uh, on Knife Lake traveling here or there. And, and so it sort of felt like coming home because it was like this familiar campsite that we had, had camped on before. Uh, that's definitely one of, one of my favorites, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to choose just one. Yeah, I can imagine you, you saw a lot, but yeah, that part we, we've been at that part with that's like at the border of um, the U S and Canada. That's a pretty, pretty cool area. Yeah. But yeah, you guys definitely saw a lot. I can imagine it's hard to pick just, just one. So you, you're currently living in Ely, right? Yep. yep. Okay. And the main focus is now the wilderness classroom. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, um, yeah, we're focused on the wilderness classroom and doing, uh, doing virtual school assemblies. And, you know, over the summer I'm leading some canoe trips and Amy's, uh, you know, helping out with our, um, at working at Ely Outfitting Company, helping with manage their outfitting and, um, and also, you know, doing some, some work with the campaign. So, so yeah, we're staying busy. Do you guys live civilized or do you live in tents? No, no. At the <laughs> moment, at the moment we're living in a house. Yeah. <laughs> does that, does that feel good? Or do you, do you miss all of your nights out outside in tents? Cause I mean, you, you guys said when you like, before you met for the first 10 years, you guys had spent more time in tents than you spent in a house (laughs) yeah yeah you know um you know we've sort of gotten used to sort of going back and forth and thankfully I'm still out quite a bit you know leading canoe trips so I still still get that but you know it's for uh you know three four five six days at a time but um and we sort of have a nomadic lifestyle we oftentimes we spend part of the year living on a sailboat um but sort of with COVID that that's not happening right now. So, it, you know, it feels good right now to be in Ely. We love, we love Ely, you know, this, this is home. Um, so, you know, whether we're here for a few weeks or, or a whole year, you know, it's always nice to be here just because um, there's a lot, a lot of close friends that are here and we just, you know, being near the boundary waters, whether we're 
you know, just visiting it for the day or, or for a week at a time, or whether we're out there for a year, just being in the North Woods, it's a great thing. So, you know, it, it's nice to have indoor plumbing and, and live in a house, but it's nice to have a mixture of being out, out in the woods too. Yeah, yeah. Definitely the amenities are much more appreciated after you're out there for so long, I can imagine. Yeah. Even just for a few days. Yeah. After a few days, I come back and I'm like, oh, running water and my bed and a shower. So I can't imagine how that first shower felt after a whole year or just like that first restaurant or anything like, wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's interesting after a long period of time, it's not something that you really crave, right? I mean, like after three weeks in the wilderness, it, it seems normal, you know, after three months, it, everything else seems abnormal, right? A- after a year, it's like, it's, it's just your life, right? I mean, it's yeah. just, it, it's what's normal. So, so you don't, you don't crave taking a shower, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe in the final couple hours before we exited the wilderness, we were like, oh, let's, we'll take a shower. That'll be fun. Um, you're so used to it. You don't feel dirty. It's just, it's just like life, you know? So you don't, you don't miss those things. Right, right. I mean, that, that makes sense if you're, yeah, you're not surrounded by all the civilization and the materialistic things that it's kind of put on the back burner. <laughs> That's, yeah, that makes sense. Um, oh yeah, winding back to the wilderness classroom, was, is education your background at all? Or has that passion just kind of tied in with your wilderness passion? Yeah, I, I don't have an education background. I Yeah, I was just sort of looking for a way to try and help people understand why wilderness is important and uh, and sort of, you know, felt connected with my friend Eric Frost. And, and we just sort of came up with this idea and sort of ran with it. And so, you know, I sort of consider myself an educator now because I've been doing it for a long time. But, you know, in college, I studied anthropology and biology and you know, Amy studied art and psychology. So neither of us have a, an education background. Well, yeah. I mean, you just totally, yeah, tied your passions into, into it. And sometimes that's, I mean, that's what people do. They just lead, lead where the wind takes them. And it's clear that you guys have done that with all of your, everything that you do. It's pretty neat. Um, Is there anything else that we haven't touched on as far as the Save the Boundary Waters campaign that people should be informed of or know? Well, I guess just that, you know, it's an ongoing thing and um, they've filed several lawsuits recently and there's a lot going on and uh, the election in November is going to be really important um, for our continued efforts to protect the Boundary Waters and and um, there's a, the Boundary Waters Action Fund actually is a uh, offshoot of the campaign to save the boundary waters. And that has, um, you know, they have candidates that they have vetted that are, are, you know, supporting protecting the boundary waters. So I encourage you to look into that and, uh, you know, find folks that are running for offices that are going to be supportive of the boundary waters and support those, those campaigns. And, uh, uh, you know, when you're getting ready to vote, just, you know, consider the boundary waters as, as a key issue that, that's important uh, and factor that in. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, and the book that you guys wrote, I mean, we didn't really totally touch on that, but can you give like a brief description of what people could expect from the book you wrote a a year in the wilderness? 
Sure. Yeah. So, so we wrote a book called The Year in the Wilderness about our journey, and uh, it, it was published by Milkweed Editions. And it's a beautiful book. It has over a hundred full color photos in it. Um, so it almost, it's almost sort of the, the ratio of text to, to images is, is almost like a magazine or something like that. So a lot of people pick it up and they sort of flip through it and they're like, Whoa, you know, it's, it's almost like a giant coffee table book. With Yeah. I was just going to say that it's like perfect for coffee tables. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But please read it because <laughs> we put a lot of effort into the words too, but, uh, but yeah, check it out. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're just really proud of it. And uh, milkweed, just did a wonderful job. We're actually working with them on our second book, which is about the three-year journey we did across North America. Um, but yeah, if you if you're interested in learning about the Boundary Waters and uh, or love going to the Boundary Waters and you haven't checked it out yet, take a look at Year in the Wilderness. And where can people find more information about that book and about you guys? You can find the book like on Amazon, or you can get it from you know any sort of your favorite local book retailer. And you can find out more about us at at our website, wildernessclassroom.org. Awesome. And are you guys still pretty active on the Freeman Explorer website as well? Well, we don't do, we're not doing too much on there right now. Um, we, there are links there like to our book and stuff, but but we've really, uh, now we're focusing mostly on the Wilderness Classroom just because that's where we're able to reach more kids. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And with this, this coming year, well, Thank you. This has been super informative and I'm really glad that we could get you on today. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with me and I look forward to listening to the podcast. We've loved doing this podcasting journey. We love bringing awesome guests on. We love seeing that people are listening and we're really, really grateful that This is hopefully inspiring other people to get outdoors. Yeah, and as part of our mission at Hiking Through Life, we really want to help support others in continuing their journey or starting their journey into the outdoors. So as part of that, we have plans for future episodes to address some listener feedback. So if you have questions about backpacking, hiking, adventuring outdoors, let us know email hikingthroughlife at gmail.com and submit us your question or topic and we'll possibly address it in a future episode. You've been listening to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Peace, love, and hike through life.